Welcome to the Cold Riddled Deviant Women. <laughs> this is the podcast where we talk to you about deviant women from history, literature, mythology, and contemporaneity. And where we try not to sound nasally and like we're full of snot. We are recording today in the den of sickness. <laughs> Don't come near, you will also contract sickness. <laughs> it's true. We have come down with colds, but we've come down with colds because we've come back from somewhere actually quite fun. It's like one of those unfortunate consequences of having a really good time. <laughs> <laughs> having too much fun and you get sick you have too much fun not enough sleep too much mud too much rain yes and then you get a crazy crazy cold you do so bear with us but we had a great time we've been away we've been at blues fest yeah how fun was that it was such fun five days of rain and mud Good in times. beautiful Byron Bay. Yeah, with <laughs> lots of fabulous music and bands. And we have our friends Ben and Laura and our friends at the California Honey Drops to thank for our time away. So thank you. So thank you so much. For the sickness. <laughs> no, we're joking. No, we're joking. Good, for the good times. Well worth it. Yeah, and the sickness is just, you know, one of those unfortunate consequences. So if we cough and splutter and sound a bit nasally in today's episode... Forgive us. Please do. Just forgive us. But, you know, our colds aren't stopping us from living our best lives. No, because on Thursday, do you like this segue? It's a good segue. This Thursday, which is the very day that this episode comes out. And so tonight, for all of you out there in podcast listening land, if you're listening to this on time, we are are super excited that our friends at the State Theatre Company have invited us to their new production, Hydra. Yeah. Exciting times. Now, Hydra is exciting for many reasons. Well, one reason is you might think because of Hydra the monster, that's an exciting thing. But it's actually named after Hydra the Greek island Hydra, which is where George Johnston, who was the author of, this is a seminal Australian kind of classic book, My Brother Jack, he and his, well, mistress, Mm -hmm. uh, another uh, writer and artist, absolutely in her own right, Charmaine Clift, They kind of set up this artist colony on the island of Hydra following their kind of scandalous affair, rocked 1940s and 50s Australia, which if you've listened to some of our previous episodes, you will know was quite a conservative place. Yeah. So it's about many of our favorite things, including that idea of the muse, the woman behind the the genius. Yeah, the the myth of the male genius and the woman who kind of gets subsumed into his mythos behind his mythos and we kind of forget about her but she wrote her own books she had this really inspirational and really famous column in the sydney morning herald and the melbourne herald and so i'm really excited to see how these dynamics play out on stage that's right so a bit of a deviant woman a bit of an australian deviant woman on stage and exciting news for our listeners because if you would also like to get along to see hydra and we know you would our friends at the state theater company have offered you 20 percent off isn't that exciting? Your tickets. We have friends in high places. <laughs> so many good friends. If you use the code Johnston. As in the surname. J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N. Yeah. When you book your tickets. So why would you not be doing that? Yeah. Right this moment. Unless, of course, you don't live 
in South Australia. Yeah. So you can't get to the play. But other than that, <laughs> you'll definitely be using it. So Yay. we're so excited. Thank you so much, State Theatre Company. So that's a, a lot of excitement to begin an episode, isn't it? Yes. So much excitement. Gosh. Golly, golly, gosh. And what exciting territory are we going into today? We're going to go into the exciting territory of myth and folklore. Oh, we haven't done any myth or folklore this season yet. It's been a while, actually. Myth and folklore. We ended season two with a little bit of myth and folklore when we talked about the Amazonians in relation to the Scythians and the Ugok princess. That's right. And our Christmas special touched a little bit on some folklore as well. But the reason why I thought I would do today's subject, which for those of you who've already read the title of the episode will know as La Llorona. La Llorona. And you might recognise that name because a film has just come out. Yeah, but actually the film doesn't use her name, I think. It does in some versions, but I think the anglicised version is just The Curse of the Weeping Woman. Because that's the translation of La Llorona. And we'll talk about that. In a bit. We will. And the reason why I chose her was because... Not because the, of the film. Not because of the film. But uh, I chose to do her now because there's been a film out recently. So I thought she'd be a little bit timely. But also because, and here's the thing, people, she was one of the key, in fact, if not the key figure of my PhD research. And I assume that now that it has been some months since you submitted and graduated, <laughs> you're past the trauma and are well enough to speak of her again. I think so. Yes. I've always been well enough to speak of her, but I think I've just, you know, yeah. You need some space. You need to decompress yeah. after a PhD. That's right. Some space yes. is needed. But yeah, she's popped up again in the zeitgeist, I suppose. So, you know, and the film, I, I've got to admit, I haven't seen the film. It's only just come out. So I can't really comment on it. But just from watching the trailers, it seems to sort of follow the standard format for a La Llorona horror film. And that's something that prompted me to want to talk about her mythos and her lore in a much more broad mm. um, sort of sense. Because, you know, it's all well and good to watch yourself a horror movie about a legend. But often we miss the nuances. We miss all that other stuff. And so. I do love a horror movie about a legend. But I also love all the nuances. And I love all of the interconnected stories that come up around La Llorona. But I don't know her story quite as well, obviously, as you do. Because I did not do a 100,000 word thesis on La Llorona. <laughs> so, yeah, this is going to be a difficult one. Because I'm going to try to condense a 100,000 words yeah. of my thesis into today's episode. Of an hour. So, <laughs> We'll do our best. So can you just begin by telling us the basic myth? Because I think when people think of La Llorona, if they know La Llorona, they think, yes, weeping woman, woman in white, haunting the night, wailing and screaming about her children. Mm, Yes, indeed. And that's uh, what your typical horror film will often tell you as well. So we're going to Mexico, we're going to Central America. And to be honest, there are different kinds of weeping woman myths Across the globe. Oh, right? all over the world. All over the world. She's pretty famous. But this is a very, one that's very specifically tied to a Mexican and also to a Mexican-American or a Chicana kind of um, mythology. So her story varies. So yeah, we'll start with her basic story, right? So it varies from tales of a, of a beautiful young woman who seduces men to their deaths. We all, we all love that woman, <laughs> of course. But we also have the other end of the spectrum of her tales where she's like a much more a beneficent spirit who helps... Beneficent? Um, beneficent? 
No, I just mean as in I never thought that she was good. Yeah, well, hey, this is what we're here for. We're oh. here for we're here to find this stuff we're out. We're here for the unexpected side we of the We are. Myth. So um, there are different ways in which she can empower and aid women in need. Good. So we're going to get to that as well. How she becomes a feminist figure. That's right. Rather than yeah. just somebody who is snatching your children. Snatching them from their and cribs. gobbling them up. Gobbling um, them up. And she's also, you know, she's she's tied very specifically to Aztec mythology, to pre-Columbian mythology, but she's also got those echoes of European invasion. Yeah. Um, so she's got those positive, those negative guises, and I think it's really important to keep that in mind while yeah. we look at her story. Especially because, as you kind of touched on, if we consider her within the context of uh, a sort of transnational mythology, mm, there definitely. are certainly a lot of figures that have a lot of echoes and a lot of mirrors to this figure, but again, when we remember her in the context of pre-Columbian Central America, we can see how unique. And it's important yes, It's important to yeah. consider her in that context as well as I think it's still really fascinating to consider her within the context of all of those ways that myths overlap. Yeah, um, definitely. But and we don't a... want to allow them to collapse onto each other. Yeah, and there's a lot, there's a lot of that. And so I guess really in terms of the basic legend. Is this the horror story version? The basic lore. The well, boogie woman in the night version of well, the Well, yeah, this is, well, I mean, she becomes a boogie woman, but the basic story, and there are very many different versions of this story as well. So someone out there will get angry because somebody out yeah. there will be like, that's not the story I know. Because yet she is a boogie woman in that sense that her story is told from, you know, generation to generation. So every, there's regional versions. Mm. Everyone's got a different sort of version. But the most kind of common types of her story usually contain a familiar set of elements, yep. I suppose. So we've got a beautiful young woman. Of course. Because all good stories start with a beautiful Can't young woman. Can't be an archetypal myth without a beautiful young woman. That's right. Or a horrendous hag. And That's in this true. case, we're going to get both. We're going to get both. They're going to become intertwined. So... In a lot of versions, she's often an Indigenous woman as well. So we already have those elements of colonisation that are going to mm. come into play. And in this kind of particular version, she's usually poor and she's desperately in love with a Spanish man. Oh, a conquistador? A conquistador, of course. So he's rich and powerful, mm. obviously. Obviously. And... Often her stories, it traverses gender, class, race. Yeah. This is why it becomes such an important story mm. that is above and beyond the horror story that you'll mm. get told. Um, so she's in love with this Spanish man. They take up together. And, of course, she's beautiful. So he's not going to deny that. So he? he's not worried about the fact that she's from this lower class and that she is poorer than him because she's beautiful. Yeah. So beauty becomes her her method of climbing socially in the world as it does for so many women yeah. throughout history. She, but she's not going to climb anywhere in oh, this world. No. She's trying. She becomes pregnant and has children by this rich and powerful figure. And they're not married. No, She's of course his mistress. Not. Yeah, he's yeah. got his own European wife at home. Thank yeah. you very much. Is there one version of the story where... He's married to a like a countess or something. Oh like yeah, someone a, very absolutely. High up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and also there are reasons for his position that are historical as well that we will come to momentarily. Oh. But we yes. will uh, some some save it. some history and some myth that intertwine. But that's we'll what we it. love. That's we'll, what we're all about. But we'll save that for the time being. Yeah. Yeah, he, he does sort of represent that sense of the invading forces, that contamination of Indigenous ways and sort of that cruelty and greed of colonial Spain, right? Yes. And, of course, as representing that cruelty and greed of colonial Spain, what does he do? 
he abandons her to return to his European wife. Abandons her with the children. Abandons her with the children. Mm. Okay. And she, of course, now this, again, depends on the version that you're listening to, she either goes mad in inverted commas because we know what we mean by that term, with grief or with revenge. Yeah, with with love lost. Like she's the, the, the scorned... The scorned, scorned woman. woman. Yeah. Oh, and we all know what a woman scorned oh, yes. can do. I smelled some whiffs of another myth. Indeed. <laughs> Just one? So, <laughs> so many. And she takes their children down to the river. Down to the river. Down to the river. As there must be folk songs. Yes, there are. Yeah. Absolutely. Because, of course, down taking your children down to the river yeah. lends itself so well to a folk song. Yeah, loads of folk songs. Actually, one in particular that gets used over and over and over again. And when I was just listening to the – when I was just watching the trailer for the new film that's coming out, of course, that's the song they use in this trailer again as well. It's always the same song, which mm. makes sense because the song is called La Llorona. Um, so that's <laughs> why just, you all they needed to do was do a quick Google search. <laughs> that's the song you're going to use. And that is a ranchero ballad that is used over and over again in regards to her story. But we're getting to the, the crux of the issue, right? Yeah. So she's got the children. She's taken them down to the river. We know what's going to happen. And we know what's going to happen. So one by one, she holds them down mm. under the water and drowns them. Oh, come on. She says, I love you to them first, doesn't she? Oh. <laughs> If you want, if you want her, I to. want her to. She imagines them going to a better place. Be- Does that make that better for you? Yes, I like to imagine her thinking that her she's been abandoned by this man who had when he left her took all of her financial security with him, and so now he never she's that, her that destitute with her children, and she has to imagine a better future for them. You know, and a better future is not in this world. A better future is in the other world. And well, so if you think about it that way, she's acting from a place of love. Well, there are, yeah, there are different ways of looking at it. And one of those ways is, as you said, it's about protecting them from the evils of the world, yeah. saving them from all of that by killing them first. Yeah. But of course. Sending them to paradise. Yeah. But that's a Christian. You're being very lenient with her at the moment, aren't <laughs> because, you? Because, well, I guess the, the flip side of that is that it is an act of revenge and she knows that killing the children is the best way to hurt her husband, I imagine. Well, lover, not husband. Lover, sorry. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. But not even – because, again, and we saw this – when we were talking about our Norse myth. Yes, Gudrun. Gudrun. That for her, killing her children was a way of severing her husband's mm. line, of destroying his legacy, as well as the emotional pain that comes with of mm. obviously having your children taken away from you. So it's it's a matter of not just that horror, but it's also spoiling your legacy. But of course, in this case, if they're not married, I suppose that's a little bit different. Yeah, they're not. They're not actually in line to be his heirs. But anyway. it's still, of course, a way to. It's a revenge. So it's an act of a wound in a man's heart. Absolutely. So it can be seen as an act of revenge, or it can be seen as an act of grief. It can be seen as an act of grace in saving those yeah. children, as you said. So there's lots of different ways to interpret it. In the very kind of Catholic post-conquest kind of. Uh, version of the story uh, she also drowns herself yeah. and in that act of suicide goes up to heaven at the gates runs into saint peter as you do um and he asks her where her children are mm. and she says she doesn't know she's lost them because they've been swept away in the river swept interesting away interesting that they didn't end up at the gates in the, that the children didn't end yeah. up at the gates no so they've been lost to her are they in purgatory they're in limbo i suppose yeah saint peter never saint specifies peter. 
Sometimes St. Peter doesn't specify. Yeah, I don't think that they're supposed to lose souls. Well, she's sent back to find them. Yeah. So St. Peter sends her back to wander eternally along rivers and streams searching for her children and she's not going to be allowed into heaven until she finds them and brings them back home. By this point, though, she's grieving her children, isn't she? She's... Again, dependent on the story, on the right. version of the story. I mean, there's no one version. Because is that where the weeping comes from? The weeping is her being yeah. this mother in grief eternally searching for her lost children or is the weeping associated with something else in other versions of the myth? So in other versions of the myth, so it's, it is often associated with grief for her lost children and grief for trying to find them and the fact that she can't. But also sometimes it can be associated with grief for the act of having murdered her children yeah. or sometimes it's just merely associated with grief for the fact that she can't rest. Rage so it's not about, about yeah. it's not about repentance, it's not about grief of loss or remorse it's more about the fact that she can't rest she can't go to heaven and her soul can't rest Mm. so again as i said she's myriad she's multiple there's no way of pinning her down to one story because it depends on the version that you're telling it it depends on whether or not this version has much more pre-columbian roots or whether it has much more catholic roots so there's so many different ways that her story functions, which is why I always find it interesting that horror films never really play too much yeah. into her actual mythos, into her actual storyline. They into things just, like her motivations yeah, yeah. and her emotional state and yeah. those kind of relationship dynamics and things like yeah. that. And often some stories that you find of her are simply as simple and as quick as she went mad and drowned her children. Yeah. And that's it. And there's nothing that you get in terms of um, her background story, where these children came from, who she was, any of that sort of stuff. Because is this because in a lot of cases her story is serving a particular purpose in that it is a story – I mean, I'm sure it serves many purposes that you tell us about, but one that I'm thinking of is that it's a story that as a parent you tell your children when they're being naughty and you want them to shut up and go to bed – like, if you don't go to bed, Lay Your Honor will come and yeah. she will steal you away. So it's a way of – it's a story in the way that so many fairy tales and myths are as a way of kind of social kind of obedience. Yeah. But it's it's not just simply about the ro- role of social obedience for children. It's also about the role of social obedience for women. Right. And this is how her story has functioned again and again in much more contemporary times. And yeah. this is how authors has taken her story and looked at it through that feminist revisionist lens that we love. Yeah. Because first, I assume though, before we get to the feminist revisionism, she's a monster. She is a monster. She's so, committed infanticide, which yeah. is, I mean, the singular chief monstrous act that and one can commit as a woman. It is yeah. the most unnatural, unseemly thing that you can ever do. And sometimes that gets even worse. Because sometimes she also eats babies. I was wondering where this came into it because the eating of the babies is also something that's associated with figures like Lamias. Mm, yeah, the Greek definitely. Lamia who eats babies after being having her eyes gouged out by Hera in because she was Zeus's lover. Yeah. And that's the whole thing. Hera was like, of course, not into this. And she punished her by 
Turning her into a monster. Turning her into a monster who that was children. Doomed, well, she was doomed to eat her own children. Mm. And the same thing happened with Lilith as mm. well, of course, the fabulous Judeo-Christian figure of Lilith, yeah. who uh, was also punished to eat her own children. Adam's first wife, That's who right. refused to obey him, yeah. refused to lie beneath him. How dare she? And she becomes a night monster who hunts and eats infant babies. Which, you know, is really a good way to spend your evenings. Well, all of these women are called like wailing women, night hags, all of these variations of these nighttime monstrous women. Yeah, that's correct. And so many versions do appear in so many different um, cultural contexts. Yeah. And yeah, you did mention that idea of the boogie woman and she does become a boogie woman in the same way that Lamias were boogie women, in the same way that Lilith was a boogie woman, something that you use to frighten children. Yeah. And in terms of La Llorona, you know, she's, she's this figure that haunts waterways, preying on children, snatching them away if they stray too close and, of course, endlessly crying and wailing. Mm. This is why she's La Llorona. This is why she's the weeping woman because you hear her crying at La night. Llorona, that means weeping woman? It does, yes. It means crying woman. So that's the direct translation. And that noise of her weeping can be heard at night and, you know, it's terrifying and dangerous. And this is what you use to threaten your children, you know, to not creep away, not to get too close to bodies of water. I mean, that's common sense. It's good sense to not get too close to bodies of water as well. But, you know, if you want to, like a bunyip, if you want to kind of scare children. Add a monstrous figure into that water and it becomes so much more dangerous. That's right. So much more reason to stay away. Yeah. And she also becomes a figure that not only scares children but also scares young men as well because she does does become that seductress that lures men into the depths. So is she like a succubus? Because also, sorry to bring it back to Lamia and Lilith, but they end up becoming succubi. The myth just kind of keeps getting – it's it's like people are like, oh, we've got – one monstrous woman, this monstrous mother who eats her children or kills her children. So let's just keep fucking going with it. If she's that yeah. monstrous, then she must also clearly be a wild, sexually deviant temptress. And all she wants is male sperm so she can keep having children, so that she can keep killing those children. And the cycle continues. Yeah, well, so she she really wants to seduce me. She's not a succubi in terms of the fact that she mates with them so much that she just drags them to their death. Yeah. So she's much more of that kind of, uh, that beautiful siren that appears mm. in the guise of the beautiful woman. And then once you've been lured in, she becomes the hag that pulls yeah. you under I and drowns you. how that part of the myth became a part of it, you know, like, because it, and again, I think that this is the interesting part. It's, it is a little bit of a stretch to go from, she drowned her children in a river because of perhaps, as we said, because of anger or revenge or grace to go from there to luring men to their deaths. Because why? So again, it's that reasoning of revenge on the man. Ah. So she's been driven to, to kill her children. She's been abandoned and betrayed by a male figure. Yeah. So it's constant revenge on the male figure. So no wonder men are so afraid of her. That's right. And women generally. So terrifying. But she usually isn't a threat to women. 
So when you said she's a warning to women, she's more like the figure of bad womanhood. This is the woman you don't want to be. Yeah. So this leads us to thinking about more generally about that idea of monstrosity and monstrous femininity and how she represents that. Because as you were saying, you know, these figures of things like Succubi, Lilith, Yalamias, a whole gambit of monstrous female figures they're about much more than simply this idea of horror. They're about this idea of a very specific female horror. They're about yeah. monstrous femininity and they're about the threat yes. of the fecund female body. Absolutely. I was just uh, going to say that. <laughs> Not in those exact words. <laughs> Not in those exact words, but yes. Yes. Yeah, so this is the threat that that figure, be it La Llorona or, you know, many of those other ones, this is the threat that she poses yeah. to the patriarchy, to the, exactly. to the masculine Because as world. soon as you take away what those, the, the ideals of femininity that are held up, that motherly, nurturing, domestic woman, as soon as that's subverted, the risk to the patriarchy becomes so intense because she is a woman who you can't control, who you can't predict, who can lure you to your own demise. Because, of course, the idea of her, like the sirens, luring these men to their deaths is really a metaphor for her beauty being this thing that takes men from their proper paths and leads them to onto this path of destruction where mm-hmm. they lose their careers and they lose their wives and their children mm-hmm. because they're horny dickheads who <laughs> can't keep it in their pants. Yeah. And uh, so she's a threat. Yeah. So thinking about her in terms of that monstrous feminine and as you were saying, like the way that we basically have this good femininity versus this bad femininity. La Llorona quite often appears in this trinity of female figures that are um, very broadly uh, familiar to any of our Mexican or Chicana listeners will know these figures very much so. La Malinche or Doña Marina, as she was known in Spanish, or Malinal, and the Virgin of Guadalupe Mm. as well. So La Malinche um, is a story that we won't go too much into because she deserves her own episode. I know this is a historical figure, isn't it? And she is a genuine historical mm. figure that really did exist. So Cortez? Yeah, so she was there at the very beginning of the Spanish invasion. She was a translator. She was basically yeah. fabulous with language. She was given away with a bunch of other girls, 20 other girls. Whoa. She was given away as a, as a peace gift to oh. Cortez and his men. Okay. Um, I didn't know that. No. And uh, she was given away to one of the other men who very quickly discovered that she had this gift for language and told Cortez and so Cortez was like well great let's use her so began to use her as his translator and then of course the story eventually as his mistress now she's a really hotly contested figure in Mexican culture that I won't get too deep into because Mm. she as I said she deserves deserves her own episode she deserves Mm. her own episode and there's a lot about her she was a genuine woman who really existed and quite an amazing woman at that but because she ended up basically helping Cortez to translate. Oh, she's seen as being like a traitor. Yes, she becomes a traitor <gasps> to her own people. This term La Malinche is actually an insult that's thrown at right. people who are seen to be unpatriotic or seem to, to turn against their own people. Yeah, so she's not associated with her because she's killed children. It's because it's this idea of the kind of, yeah. The that. bad woman, yeah. right? It's this idea. So this comes to this, and of course, 
La Llorona and La Malinche are butted up against the Virgin of Guadalupe, who's, of course, our Madonna. Is she the, she's the opposite. She's I was going to say, I, I don't see how the Virgin no, of Guadalupe can fit with the other two, yeah. but I'm going to wait for you to tell me how. So, so she's the opposite. So basically, in those layman's terms, we end up with the Virgin whore dichotomy. Yeah. That's what we've got. Okay. So the Virgin of Guadalupe obviously is the Virgin. Yes. Um, she's uh, basically like a mestiza version of the Madonna, who is also mixed in with indigenous mm. um, gods. Is she like a paragon of motherhood, of so, yes, virtue, she's, she's aligned virginity, with All of those chastity. Virgin Mary tra- traits. Yeah. She's genuinely bigger than Jesus in Mexico. Yeah. If you go, so again, all of our Mexican friends listening already know this, that you'll see much more of the Virgin of Guadalupe in yeah. Mexico than you will of Jesus. She is really the big cheese. Yep. So she is directly... In opposition to those whores. Yeah. Right? And the whores being Malinche because she betrayed her people for yep. a man, Spanish man. Obviously, as I said, the story is much more than that. <laughs> much more complicated. Much more complicated than that. And La Llorona as that real embodiment of yep. the bad And evil. so those two figures start to overlap then. They do. So those two figures start to come together. Their stories, because, of course, as you remember, this story, this post-conquest story that we started with, talks about the indigenous woman that is taken in by the Spanish man and has the affair with him. Yes. So, again, it's that colonial force meets the indigenous woman. So it Mm. feeds into, it overlaps there with the historical story around Cortez and Malinche. So that's how these two figures come to sometimes be conflated together and making them both even more monstrous when you put them together and tie them. That virgin whore dichotomy is one that we see again and again and again. Sure is. And that obviously plays into this idea of monstrous femininity that restricts particular roles for women in society, right? So this is the whole idea. This is the whole purpose of this story is not simply to keep your children away from rivers and streams, but to let women know that female desire only leads to bad things. To terrible child deaths Correct. and wandering the nights alone like a wailing, terrifying woman in white. Yeah. So here the problem is, the actual problem in this story, so the patriarchy wishes to tell us in this yeah. story, let's just keep talking about That's that. That's how it is the patriarchy. Let's just keep throwing it out there, <laughs> is that the problem is maternal desire, right? Yeah. Maternal desire? Maternal desire because it's a mother, it's this female. So like so, once you're a mother, you're no longer allowed to have sexual desire. That's right. Yeah. Once you're a mother, you need to be like that. You need to be the virgin, you're the virgin mother. Mary. You should be the virgin mother, right? Yeah. And you shouldn't have desire. You shouldn't have your own agency. Yeah. So here there's nothing more threatening. There's nothing more monstrous than a maternal woman with desire. Yeah. Someone who doesn't completely sacrifice her everything. And and someone who makes her own decisions. Sure. Those decisions are to murder her children. Not great decisions. Don't stand by those decisions, (laughs) but it's female agency. So the story is telling us that female desire and female agency will only lead to evil. But of course, because for this story to be effective, it has to be the most extreme version of Mm. this. It's not going to be like the mother is evil because she desired ice cream on a Friday (laughs) night. Like that's not very terrifying. Oh no, she put on some extra kilos because she couldn't stay away from the chocolate chip. No, it has to be horrendous. It has to be terrible. Because we have to keep that 
boundary, that female role has to be very narrow. Yes. It has to you it's have to stay you have, circumscribed. You have to stay within those bounds of what's expected of you. So that's part of what this story also does. And this is part of why a lot of the representations of La Llorona that come through in popular culture are often ones that are pushed back against and rejected yeah. by a lot of feminist revisionists specifically. Yep. And I'm talking about that because that's where my research this lies. This is where you come in. Is this where we now move from the depiction of the monstrous woman to the revisionist woman? Yeah, so I, I think that it's worth kind of mentioning some of the ways that she's become even more monstrous has been through that kind of popular culture lens that has left all of that other stuff by the wayside and has focused on the terrific horror story that's there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's not – it is a terrific horror story. Of course. Absolutely. This woman in white, and, of course, the woman in white is a typical thing, also comes back to some Aztec mythology that I'd like to touch on if we can have time. Okay. So in that – kind of broader popular culture kind of version her story's grown and i say you know the film that's come out recently isn't new it's nothing different from what i can see in the trailer so you know if you've seen the film and it's different let me know but she appears in all sorts of tv shows and lots of movies but Um, she's also kind of got this urban legend sort of quality to her that goes back before this yeah so this urban legend kind of concept of her you know being that that spectral figure on the highway that you stop for and you pick up yeah yeah. So she's been. Oh, I love the woman on the side of the road. She's great. Oh, the ghost on the side of the road. So she's been mixed into all of those urban legends as well. And this is much more that kind of idea of the popular culture horror figure that's come from that. And in those sort of re- renditions of her tale, that's really where she becomes the child consumer, where she becomes the eater of children, and that's, right? Is that just the myth kind of following as horror stories do? Yeah. They just attach themselves to greater yeah. and greater, more more grotesque And it versions. just grows and becomes Snowball something much bigger from there. And, um, Snowball of horror. <laughs> It's the best kind of snowball. <laughs> it's all bloody and there's all limbs and sticking out of heads. it. Oh, we're going to add a head on there. We're going <laughs> to add a, a child who's been eaten in half. Oh, no. The snowball of horror is not good times. <laughs> but this is kind of – it is. It's that snowball effect of we've got a really terrific premise here for a scary story and we're just going to build on that and build on that. And one of my favourite representations of her for her – just for the all-out gore and grotesque monstrous femininity that they go to, is Universal um, Studios, they hold these amazing Halloween Horror Nights. If anyone's been to one, let us know. Fuck, man. Because they look good. They look really good and really scary. Into it. They look like I would wet myself. And they basically have, like, these mazes, these labyrinths that are always themed to whatever's popular at the time, right? Yeah. So I think last year there was, like, a Stranger Things maze. There's always like a Friday the 13th maze. There's like, you know, it's just, there's like a walking dead maze when that was all the rage. Like, so, and you basically just, you you go in and you go through and it's like a ghost train, but a thousand times more terrifying. Well, it's one of the ones with people jumping out at you and stuff. Yeah. But because like there's a movie production company behind it, everything's a thousand times more (laughs) terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot more scary than what you get down at your local carnival. And a couple of times since, Sort of like 2011, I think, was when they first ran the first one. They've had La Llorona themed oh, mazes, right? Getting shivers just you should thinking look about it. them up. You okay. should look them up because they're pretty terrifying. And they're an interesting concept, right? Because they take all of the grossest 
most grotesque parts of the myth and put that into the maze, right? And again, as I said before, the whole story becomes this larger than myth, larger than yeah. life, can you say, that kind of story of the grotesque. And <laughs> there's animatronic La Llorona's yes. that are, like, eating children. There's oh, like, it sounds like a dream. <laughs> <laughs> there's, like, little babies floating in rivers. There's Oh, what the fuck? Yeah, it's full on. That's grotesque. It is grotesque. Oh, man. I'm surprised they can get away with that. Well, I mean, this is because it's kind of, it's no longer really, it's just this generic representation mm. of taking all of the, as I said, all of the most grotesque. All the dead babies, all the dead babies floating in the river. All of those tropes. Like me. <laughs> all of those fabulous, and I say fabulous because I mean, like, it sounds Pretty spectacular. Yeah, it? it does. Of course, it's it does. In, in extreme of that, getting the getting your adrenaline pumping because you know you're about to see something that is so horrific. The yeah, the car crash quality of you know yeah. humanity that we are all drawn to these scenes of absolute fucking mayhem <laughs> for some reason. I don't know why. Well, some of us are anyway. I am. I don't know why. Anyway, <laughs> the death drive. I suppose it, it is. I suppose it is. <laughs> But, I mean, this kind of feeds back into that, I guess, commodification, I suppose, of that original folkloric figure. Mm. And while it, I guess, sort of serves to introduce her to a broader audience, it also reinforces that monstrosity and it reinforces that, uh, to use a word that we love but we'll have to try not to get too in-depth with, it reinforces that abject uh-huh. Feminine yes. body. Oh, yes, that of course. Abject feminine quality. So abject. Yeah. And I guess because of that kind of the dominance that these kind of uh, cultural studios. producers have, yeah. Yeah. you know, many people, this is exclusively how they come to this legend. This is exclususively how they come to La Llorona. But I suppose even when they're coming to La Llorona in this context, they're still kind of divorced perhaps from a lot of those kind of misogynistic undercurrents because if she is just a monster, if she is just a monster who's coming for your children, you're not getting all of those other elements of why this makes of her monstrous. Of race, of gender, of class yes. that play into the story. Yes. So while it is a very one-dimensional depiction of her, I suppose lacking that depth of the complication also means that maybe you're not thinking of her as being a representation of what happens if you're a woman who has desire. Yeah. Yeah, because that's not what – you don't go to a horror-themed <laughs> maze to have a good old think about the patriarchy. No. Do you? Generally. I mean uh, – so maybe. Maybe. Depends on the maze. I feel like we would do that. <laughs> yeah, this maze. <laughs> maybe it's not. reinforcing <laughs> – my trauma. Maybe not everybody does that, but I feel like actually that probably is the way we would approach yeah. it. But I guess some of those, some of the reasons as well why why it's interesting to think about that monstrosity is because some of the earliest versions of her story are traced back to a mythology, pre-Columbian mythology. Yes. Right? So does a lot of this monstrosity come from when we have these first Spanish Catholic priests arriving and applying their own prism of understanding monstrous femininity, which comes from this biblical stuff? You know, we've got Eve and we've got all the others. <laughs> There's too many to mention. Yeah. And just going, oh, here's some patterns, here's some symbols here's a framework, let's apply it. Absolutely, yeah. So we've got that beautiful Catholic lens yeah. that's just going to put itself onto another culture. Yeah. As It's never 
never been done never before. Never been done before. Let's try it. Let's try it here in the new world and see what happens. It doesn't so, go well, people. It doesn't go well. So where's the origin before this lens? So we can trace um, her back to Aztec mythology, which, you know, Aztec mythology also has its own roots that go much further back than that. But of course, because, you know, the Aztecs were the ruling people at the time, this is the lens through which the Spanish first encountered yeah. the mythology that was there in the 15th century. So in her earliest kind of versions, she's she's linked to quite a few goddesses and spirits, but probably most importantly, she's linked to the goddess Siwakuatl. Uh, sorry, say that again. Siwakuatl. Okay. So my Nahuatl is not fabulous. But it's probably better than better than mine. Than the layman on the street. I, I mean, I have a blocked nose, but I imagine that that's not <laughs> the main reason why I wouldn't be able to say no. that. And it actually really would be more like Nahuatl, but I sound stupid saying it, so we okay. just go with the anglicized version yeah. of that. So the goddess Siwakuatl, she functions as very much. A figure of fertility and destruction at the same time. Oh, right? so she's been likened some like Kali. Yeah, I was about to say exactly that. Some scholars <laughs> have likened her to basically an Aztec Kali. Yeah, goddess. I'm down. She's a destroyer and a life bringer. The and this, dichotomies of life. And this is really important, right? Because it's important to have that dualism of creator yeah. and destroyer, rather than separating them into one or the other. So um, she is a fertility goddess. She's said to have ground up the bones from the land of the dead with some god penis blood, as you do. Oh, as you as you do, do. in order to create the first humans. Wow! So this is how she creates life from death. Excellent. Right? Which is pretty handy. Much better creation story. Penis blood, you know, ground. Why not? And so this kind of. Association, as I said, with creating human life out of human death makes her very much a fertility goddess and a patron of midwives as well as an emblem of death and decay. Yeah. So that we've got that both happening yeah. there. Which, as you said, it really makes so much more sense in life for them to be combined. Yeah. Because rather than treated as separate entities because they are inextricably combined together, destruction and life. So most of the early documentation, of course, that we have about the Aztec pantheon comes from the Franciscan friars who were documenting it. So this comes secondhand from the friars. That's right. Yeah. So they're um, documenting it into the codexes, which you may have heard of. We no longer have original Aztec, direct Uh, Aztec. Other than what was already in the temples. Yeah. Other than what was already there um, in terms of what was represented. In terms of the written documents, it's the codexes yeah, that okay. we refer to. So one of these codexes, the Florentine Codex, outlines lots of the beliefs and rituals surrounding Siwakuotl. And this is kind of where we find those ideas that transpose with La Llorona yeah. and how they kind of connect, how these stories start to connect and become one and the same. So it goes that uh, she's the goddess who foretells the arrival of the Spanish and the downfall of the Aztec people yeah. and their defeat at the hands of the European invaders. And they, she already existed before, like pre-Columbian? They, they knew that – I guess she's predicting the downfall of the Aztec That's Empire. That's right, yeah. So this is, And then they applied it to, oh, that must have been the Spanish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So um, in these stories, she wanders the streets weeping and crying – 
Yeah. Wandering the streets. Yeah. Weeping and crying. Weeping and crying. And calling out for her lost children. Her, lost, her lost children being the Aztec people. Okay. Okay. Right. Cool. So, With you. But, of course, we can apply this to Lionel's yes. story as well. In these versions of the story, she's like a, a phantom that's, you know, she's, she's an omen of war. She's foretelling war. She's foretelling death. And... Her cry of mis hijos, my mm. children, is associated with La Llorona weeping for her children as well. So it's been transferred onto La Llorona's stories. Now, she also appears in the Cotexes. Her descriptions are of her appearing in white, garbed in white, standing white, pure white, white robes. And of course, this becomes synonymous with La Llorona as well yeah. as this figure who appears in white. So again adding to that sinister and ghostly appearance that we come to associate with La Llorona and a whole bunch of other women in white myths that we won't go into here. Yeah. So also the symbolism of the serpent gets attributed to her as well because her name also means woman snake. Oh, right? oh. So- of course it does. So you're going to love this. I because, fucking know I will. Of course. The connection between the woman snake and... The l- fucking serpent. We've got right. Lilith. We've got Lamia. They're all associated with snake And Eve, obviously. Yeah. All yeah. associated with snakes. And so this didn't go unnoticed by the Catholic friars oh, either, of I, course. I bet it did not. Yeah. Um, and one of those friars had this to say, of course, that um, Siwakuatl means woman of the snake. They also <laughs> call her Tenonsen, which is our mother. According to these two items, it would seem that the Aztecs knew what happened between our mother Eve and the snake who deceived her. Ultimately, basically, they conflated them together and they go on to say the goddess seems to certain to have been demon in the shape of a woman. So by demon here, they mean Satan. So they mean to suggest that the Aztecs knew of the biblical creation myth because they were aware of the association between the serpent and Eve and what that represented in terms of the fall of man. Yeah, so... (laughs) So a nice little bit of Eurocentrism here. Yeah, that's a stretch. Um, yes, yeah, a stretch. I mean, there's a snake. There is a snake. And there's a woman. Yeah. And, you know, snakes and women, we now have a very specific idea about that. <laughs> but who's to say that the, I don't think the Aztecs were quite yeah. going down that path. Maybe not. It and is this, interesting, though, the way that snakes and women become so synonymously attached to each other. And it's very handy when you want to try to get rid of a uh, indigenous culture and yes. overlay it with yes. a different culture entirely. Yes. That shit plays right <laughs> into your hands. Yeah, that stuff works totally. in your favour. All of that iconography and that symbolism and that's so potent. And that's, of course, why this goddess who began as this dualistic goddess who's both a creator and a destroyer, so really neutral, not necessarily yeah. good or bad, this is how this kind of goddess becomes explicitly bats explicitly evil interestingly lilith technically is both a creator and a destroyer as well and she's also associated with the serpent i mean she's birthing two children who she then destroys constantly but she is exclusively evil she's never intended to be a figure no that's neutral she's never intended to be a figure that's seen as a good figure of creation no not until the 1970s and she was reclaimed by 
feminist revisionist mm. fem- <laughs> that's right whereas of course in this aztec pantheon it's much more an understanding of us it's not like it was a feminist utopia sure but it's still much more of that yes. meeting of good and bad yeah. cre- black and white creator destroyer it's much more the two come together yeah. rather than they are split completely yeah but this is how la Llorona becomes much more of that figure of evil because she works into that new catholic yeah synchromysticism of like bringing Catholic religion on top of an Indigenous existing religion. Seeing these kind of meaningful symbols and overlaying them with one another Mm. to serve a particular purpose. Yeah. But she's also conflated with other sort of Aztec deities as well that are also sort of spirits that are linked to different kinds of maternal failure, right? So the idea Mm. that if you die in childbirth or you die while your child's still an infant, you failed as a mother, you can't look after that child. So these spirits tend to wander at crossroads looking for children that they can claim as their own. So she's also becomes very much tied up with these spirits and deities as well. So she's got a lot of that early pre-Columbian belief system that feeds into the post-colonial Catholic mindset that then starts to turn her into much more of this figure of haunting and preying on children. And monstrosity. And monstrosity. So how does she then, from these pre-Columbian roots, neutrality, etc., going Catholic overlay, monstrosity, contemporaneously she is being reclaimed and she is being taken back under the mantle of feminism and is being used as a figure to represent female agency, a desire, etc. Yeah. How do those links come about? So I guess sort of starting really probably like in the 70s, 80s, there were a lot of Shikana women who took her story on as, you know, through that lens of feminist revisionism. And one of my favourite authors who, again, many of our listeners may know of is um, Gloria Anzaldúa. She was a fabulous writer. And she sort of saw La Llorona as this figure that could be reconsidered, reshaped and rewritten to sort of, as she put it, unlearn the putter virgin dichotomy that Um, virgin whore unlearn that virgin whore dichotomy in order to take her back to her indigenous roots and find that both find that dualism instead of that kind of that either or that either or that bind there we're all about breaking down those binaries here in feminist revisionism land we are and it's fun times And it's also, I think, about that idea of the power of that abject femininity to disrupt that masculine patriarchal system, right? Yeah. So, no, obviously no one's condoning children killing. That's fine. Or eating. We're Um, not condoning. We're not. We're not. But seeing that as an act that disrupts that social hierarchy. Because it's a symbolic act. Yeah, absolutely. It's not the act itself, it's what it represents. As we said before, it's the most extreme version of the act in order to make a particular point. Yeah. So Shereen Moraga, who's uh, another fabulous author, she says, and I quote, when La Llorona kills her children, she's killing a male-defined Mexican motherhood that robs us of our womanhood. This ancient myth reminds Mexican women that culturally speaking, there is no mother woman to manifest who is defined by us outside of patriarchy. We have never had the power to do the defining. We wander not in search of our dead children, but our lost selves, our lost sexuality, our lost spirituality, our lost wisdom 
Yeah. So it's taking that figure to break down. <laughs> Look at your face. You're like, hey, yeah. But so it's looking at that story and rewriting that story in other ways of thinking about this woman who weeps as a speaking subject. Yes, right? exactly. So it's that because, voice that speaks. Yeah, because it's something that I think is difficult to explain when you work within this field as we both do and you sort of deal with these stories of women who do commit monstrous acts quite often and then you're sort of representing them as being feminist figures it can be difficult to articulate why somebody doing something so horrific is empowering Mm. but it comes back to that it comes back to that symbolic act of destruction it's like no i'm not condoning a monstrous act and no i'm not celebrating killing children i don't think that's a good thing it's about exactly that yeah. And that's what makes it empowering. Yeah. And I think that that's sometimes people are, feminists all want to kill our children and eat them. Yes. You know, that's what feminists know. Yeah. So it's like that famous quote, it's by Pat Robertson, who said, the feminist agenda is not about equal rights for women. It's about a socialist, anti-family political movement that encourages women to leave their husbands, kill their children, practice witchcraft, destroy capitalism and become lesbians. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> That's, yes. Oh, that's, yes. Correct. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> Was, he's like a minister or something, yeah. isn't he? Yeah. 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 Oh, so good He's a time. televangelist. He's a televangelist. That's right. I knew, knew <laughs> something like that. So, but I mean, this is the thing, of course, is obviously that that's not killing. Necessarily. Not, not that part not of it. Not that part of it. It's entirely not the point of revisiting this story and reclaiming this figure. The point of reclaiming this figure and again, like I've got lots of quotes, lots of really fabulous quotes because it makes sense because it's my PhD yeah. um, thesis. So and, of course and I'd it, have quotes. And it is also a Shikhanam story as well. And it is. So important. I want to quote actual academics yes. and women who are Shikana yes. working in this field because we need their words because I'm clearly not Shikana. So I yeah. can't speak for them. Yeah. But um I can definitely use what they have said to make this point. Because yeah. Domino Perez, who wrote a really terrific book and one of the most sort of comprehensive books about the myth of La Llorona, she says for Chicana specifically, and I should specify Chicanas, that's Mexican-American women specifically. So that, that mix, not just of Mexico, but also the borderlands. Yeah. So just in case you didn't have clue what I meant by that term. So for Chicana specifically, La Llorona is symbolic of historic and contemporary oppression of women by economic and patriarchal forces. By calling upon female Aztec precursors to La Llorona and reinstating her agency, Chicanas are recasting her outside of the boundaries of tragedy where her actions become a representation of female resistance. Mm. And that's the key to how her story is being retold is seeing her as that speaking subject. So that's where that idea of her being the crying woman, the weeping woman, she's the woman who has a voice. Yeah. She's the woman who isn't afraid to speak out. She doesn't, she's not silent, right? Yeah. So she's this speaking subject. She's this figure of resistance. And that's why she becomes a much more nuanced and significant figure than just this creepy woman in the dark Coming who's snatching, out, snatching at your, your babies from their cribs. That's right, yeah. So I think this is why, for me, I find her such a fascinating yeah. figure because of the way that she's kind of become 
as I said, I guess that that symbol of this concept of the problem of this maternal desire and this female agency mm. being being what is going to lead you to evil, yeah. right? Female agency, female desire will lead you to evil. That's exactly what this pod. That's where deviant women in the title of this podcast literally comes from. Exactly, this, this idea that female agency and following female desire is outside of the boundaries of acceptability yeah. and, and it normality. Can, it can only end in disaster. Yeah. It can only end in horror. Yeah. It's what we're here for. It's what we're here for. <laughs> so where has her story kind of ended up? Is there, if you don't want to just see the monstrous, if you don't just want to see the horror film, where can you encounter La Llorona. So there's loads of poets and authors who have revisited her story in different ways. I mentioned, of course, Gloria Anzalua, whose writing you can find, uh, her poetry you can find. She's got a fabulous, fabulous book called Borderlands, which I could not recommend highly enough. But also another author who people probably have heard of as well is Sandra Cisneros. She is brilliant. She's uh, still around, still writing today. She's just a, f- a phenomenal figure. And she's got a terrific short story called Woman Hollering Creek, which is in a collection of short stories by the same name, which is just a fabulous collection of stories. Um, so she's out there. You can find her in many different guises. She's really worth exploring beyond that horror story, mm. beyond, beyond that monstrous narrative that we're given. I feel I've only touched the surface and I know people out there are like, but this, but that, but, and I know the butts. I've got a hundred thousand word thesis with the butts. So if you want to read the hundred thousand word thesis, you know, get in touch. I probably won't send it to you. I was going to say, but, you will be like, nah. nah, but it will be unembargoed in a few years. It will. So, so keep, <laughs> keep your eyes peeled. Eventually you can read it. But yeah, so I mean, Obviously, we don't have hours and hours. We've only got an hour. We can only scratch the surface. But I feel like we've, you know, I feel like we've gotten to to the heart of some of these issues and some of these reasons why I think that La Llorona is such a fabulous yeah, figure to look at. I think at. that we've definitely, hopefully we've given everyone enough of an idea that they can, if they're really fascinated by La Llorona, can go and, and do some more investigating. And maybe if you go and see the film, you'll be seeing it through new eyes and looking and, and, mm. and wondering. And questioning. Yes. And I feel like I've inadvertently now made everybody want to go and see the film. Right? I mean, I'm going to go and see it. Yeah. It's also set in the Conjuring universe, and I really love the Conjuring films. So. Oh, that's right. It's by. So, well, see, this is this is another question: is that who writes the films? Yeah. So, uh, white American dude, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, but would you have any concept of what we might do or where we might go next time? We're actually going to stay not in mythology, but we've got something a little bit mythical, in the sense do of we? do we? A little uh, bit. Do I know? Am a little I bit of cultist. A little bit. Yes. Oh, I do know. <laughs> Look at me catching on. We, we are going back into the world of art, but we're going back into the world of art through a particularly fascinating lens and and through a medium which I imagine many people have dabbled with themselves it's and exciting. maybe don't know the full history of. So I'm really excited about it. This is someone I've been wanting to do for a very long time. I'm and excited I'm about this super one. keen to get my hooks into this woman next week. Excellent. Fortnite. Fortnite. Hey. That one. Quibbles. Why quibble? <laughs> so thank you once again for coming on board with us this week. Yeah. And if you 
would like to support us, then you know you can. There are ways to do that, people. Join us on Patreon where you get all sorts of extra content. We have mini episodes, blooper reels, animation, and we're going to have a whole bunch of more stuff coming at you very soon, as little as just $2 a month. And of course, you can also uh, buy merchandise on Etsy if you'd like to get your hands on a pin or a t-shirt. And you can follow us on all the social medias. We are at Deviant Women. You can also listen to us on your podcasting app of choice where you can leave us a review. And subscribe. And tell your friends. And as a final thing before we go, don't forget Hydra opens on Thursday, the day that this episode comes out. Johnston. Johnston Johnston. is your key. That's starting to sound like I'm saying a rude thing. (laughs) Johnston is your discount code. Plug it in when you buy your tickets. You get 20% off. Thank you again to the State Theatre Company. And thanks as well, again, to our friends at the California Honey Drops for giving us colds. No, they didn't give us colds. (laughs) But... Hey, Ben. And shout out to Laura. (laughs) So we look forward to seeing you again next time. That's it from us. We hope you can sleep tonight and that La Llorona doesn't come into your bed. But, you know, if she does, if you are having nightmares, just remember she's she's there for the empowerment, people. Yeah. 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 She's your feminist sister. We'll I hope that next. makes you sleep better. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>